0: So have you ever had that experience where uh, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, how's it going? And you're like, I have no idea at the moment who you are. It's somebody that you did know from the past, but they have changed so much. It's like, I didn't recognize you. Now, uh, in that moment, one has to be, uh, how should we say, extremely careful how you respond because their change in appearance uh, may have been, uh, how should we say, not for the better, So, I mean, there's lots of places we could go with that, but I'm just going to leave it uh, right there. I've had that experience before, but you know what? I love stories of transformation where people have completely changed. These days, uh, there's HGTV, right, which shows transformation of a home or a building, uh, renovation. But a few years ago, it wasn't about buildings. It was about people with shows like, you know, Extreme Makeover or... The Biggest Loser, so they'll take a person who's applied to the television show that wants to make extreme or radical change and they take them away to a a campus uh, from their family, their friends, for a period of, I think, three months, and they just put them through the paces so that when they're done, they just look and feel completely different. And the evidence of the changes over a period of three months or so is like usually extreme weight loss, uh, increased, you know, muscle mass, they get toned up, sometimes they even, you know, pair that with a a surgery to remove excess skin, they'll give somebody an entire new hairstyle and a cut and a color, a new set of clothes and glasses if they wear those, And quite often these shows, they will also pair this with like counseling or therapy so that when a person is done, there's also this glow about them. There's an inner beauty, a confidence and a a joy in their life. And then they invite all their family and friends to the big reveal when they walk out and people see them for the first time after they've changed so much. And usually the look on their faces is one of absolute shock. I did not recognize you. If you had been walking down the street and you said hi to me, I probably would have not known who you are. This is not the same person. So from our text today that was uh, just read for us, we, see, we discover just how much Saul, who would later be known as the Apostle Paul, how much he changed after his life was interrupted by God and set on this new path, this new trajectory. His encounter with Jesus left him a completely different man. And so as uh, today, we're going to look at uh, the evidence of that change in his life. And my prayer is that you and, and, and I will contemplate that evidence or maybe lack thereof in, in our lives, reflect on that and ask God to do the change that only he can do only his work in us. So that, we will, so that when people look at us, they will see the evidence of our relationship with Jesus. So today, I just want to walk us through five different evidences, so to speak, of a changed life. You could call them evidences of God's grace in Saul's life. That hopefully will be part of ours. The first one, the first evidence of a changed life is a healthy dependence on other disciples. I use the word disciples intentionally because... We need other believers in Jesus around us uh, to help us on our journey, so to speak. Our text begins this way. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. For some days. I think to myself, I wonder what those some or several days, other translations say. I wonder what that was like for Saul and for the brothers and the sisters that surrounded him. One of the questions that I might ask when I get to heaven and actually meet somebody like the great apostle Paul. But if, as you go through this text, um, that's verse 19, but you go to verses 23 and 25. It says, the Jews plotted to kill him, but his disciples took him. Verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And then in the next verse, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. That was in Jerusalem. And then in verse 28, so he went in and out among them the apostles the disciples in in jerusalem verse 29 but they were seeking to kill him and when the brothers learned of this they brought him down to caesarea and sent him off to tarsus so what i'm preaching here today kind of picks up where pastor matt left off last week with his final point and that was the family of faith is a radically gracious and loving community. You see, Saul went from being, you know, an overly zealous, independent, do it my way, super intense, violent, persecutor of the church. He went from all of that to now needing others. In fact, the advance of the gospel demanded that Paul rely on others. Before Jesus, Paul didn't need anyone. But now he desperately relied on them. And this became his MO from that point on. You just, just read, you know, Paul's letters, his epistles that we know them as to the early church. He never, ever did ministry alone. And he continually named and acknowledged those whom he surrounded himself with who were an, an integral part of the ministry and the mission that God had called him to. Last week, Matt said that Paul was known as a killer of Christians who became a brother in the church. Paul had changed so much, but that change was not immediately recognized by everyone, uh, particularly in Jerusalem. And so Paul needed an advocate. He needed a Barnabas. Listen, and we all know this, after being uh, hurt or wronged or sinned against, which which the church was, the church was wounded persecuted by Saul it takes time to heal and it takes a lot of time to establish trust right and we all need a Barnabas in our lives uh, one who will help us heal the hurts to re-establish trust to to be that friend and that intermediary between us and the people that we've hurt or the ones that have hurt us I recently um Lost trust with someone. Yes, it happens to pastors too. Surprise, surprise. This was due to some misunderstandings and, and misinterpretations of things that I had said. Does that ever happen to you? Uh, I think so. And it literally, this happened just a few weeks ago. It literally took a Barnabas to invite me to two meetings. The first was with just her, where she presented the issues and said, I want to help restore. Uh, what's happened, the misunderstandings, the communication that somebody thought you were saying. And then another meeting, a follow-up to that, where she also attended with the offended or or confused party, and she just was so gracefully, uh, was a mediator to help me make things right, to help the other person understand. And I was so glad that she was a Barnabas to me. Listen to verses 27 and 28 of our text but Barnabas took him took Saul and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord it took a Barnabas to establish some trust with the apostles and the disciples at Jerusalem because they just didn't know how much Saul had changed. Earlier in the book of Acts chapter four, it says this, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, and and he was renamed because of just who he was and what he did, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, in brackets, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Other translations say, uh, instead of son of encouragement, it says son of consolation or son of exhortation. Listen, it doesn't matter how you slice it. Barnabas was a pretty incredible guy. The type of person that we have all needed or will need at some point in our lives. We're in Acts 9. If you go a couple of chapters later, Acts 11, verse 24, it describes Barnabas as, quote, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. His name appears 34 times in four books of the Bible. He is the one, in fact, who took John Mark with him after Paul said, I, no way, I don't want that guy on my team. Barnabas took him to reestablish trust and eventually again with the apostle Paul, Later, that was Acts 15 where that happened. Barnabas was a mediator. He he believed the best in others. He was faithful and he was generous. And we all need someone like that in our lives. And just as we need a Barnabas... We also need other supporters who will help us in practical ways. Look, if it wasn't for Saul's disciples and other people in the church at that time, he he could have lost his life. They literally helped save his life on a few occasions. The brothers, so to speak, had his back. And listen, we, we, I, need to move from this fierce independence to a healthy dependence and and an interdependence on other people, other disciples, because we can't do life alone. Who's going to be there to cover your back when you need it? And whose back will you cover? You see, there's safety. There's so much blessing in this kind of relationship and in accountability. So a question, who, who do you identify most with today? Do you identify more with Saul or with Barnabas? And that means, who do you Need to go to today for help, maybe you're a new christian you've got or you 've got an edge or you're working on something and your God is chipping away at something in your life who, who can you go to for help? and if you're that Barnabas, who do you need to reach out to today who's struggling who who needs some support that you can come alongside this past week I, I read an, an article in psychology today that was entitled Uh, what's wrong with being independent and it begins this way like it or not other people are essential later on it says critical to your success and your well-being American culture this is an American perspective it says values independence but sometimes we can take it a bit too far I'd say we take it way too far independence has no place really in the church And then it says, here are the benefits of a healthy dependency. Number one, you lighten your load, you share it. Number two, you learn more. We need other people to help us learn. Number three, we um, increase our effectiveness through collaboration. We can do way more as we collaborate with other people. And number four, it improves our relationships. Uh, We need to be surrounded by people and not be in isolation. The second evidence of a changed life that I see in this text is a radical obedience to the word of the Lord. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Now verse 20, and immediately, immediately, he proclaimed Jesus. That word means what it says, at once, no hesitation, forthwith, right away, he began To tell others about Jesus in the synagogues. This was an immediate response to the word of the Lord at his conversion. If you go back to that word of the Lord in verse 15 that Pastor Matt talked about last week, the word of the Lord came through, came to Ananias that was passed along from him to Saul. And God said, so it says here, but the Lord said to him, said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry on my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Last week, Pastor Matt said, your conversion leads to a costly call. That's true. There's a call of God in all of our lives, not just Saul, when we meet Jesus. But, but that only goes so far if, unless the call is answered. We, we can't be engaged, we can't realize the call that God has for us unless we respond with unwavering and radical obedience. So here's a question, when God asks you, when God asks me to do something, we, we need to say, how long, how long does it take before I respond? And how long do you stick with it after you respond? You see, Paul acted immediately, and he continued in obedience, even when things got extremely difficult for him. So listen, maybe you're a brand new believer, a brand new disciple, Christian follower of Jesus. Maybe you've been in it a long time. I wanna say this to you, aside from probably the roles of elder and deacon in the church, those kind of formal roles, I don't see spiritual maturity being a factor in serving Jesus. In fact, sometimes I think it is the less we know the better because we can convolute things so quickly, especially the gospel, if, if we just think about things too long. I, I just love the contagious enthusiasm and, and innocence of that brand new Christian who is so excited to tell everyone about Jesus. They, they say, you know what? I, I don't really know what happened. I can't explain it. I don't understand it all. But one thing I do know, once I was blind, And now I see. I know that Jesus is real. I know that he's the son of God because I met him. Which leads to another key characteristic of a changed life, the third one, and that is an eagerness to proclaim Jesus. So for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. This is one area of obedience I think that we all struggle with. I do. Especially that phrase, uh, not just proclaiming Jesus, but that phrase in the synagogues. You see, that's the place where Saul was probably the most well-known. He's a Pharisee, right? Like he, that's where he spent life, in the synagogues, learning and teaching. He was a religious zealot. And now he was probably the most hated member there because of his relationship with Jesus and his proclamation of the gospel it's hard to share the gospel on your own turf uh, verse 21 it says this and all who heard him were amazed <laughs> and said is this not the man who made havoc in jerusalem of those who called upon this name like what is going on here who is this they were amazed even in its most weakened or attenuated sense, the word amazed or to be astonished, other translations, has this um, sense of uh, complete uh, astonishment mingled with fear caused by events which are miraculous, extraordinary, or extremely difficult to understand. It, it's like a person is completely overwhelmed and astounded out of your wits or out of your mind trying to figure out what is happening. It just rocks your world. And Saul had such an eagerness and excitement and enthusiasm to share Christ that people just didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know what to think of him. They didn't know what to do with him. Especially given who he was just days or weeks ago, the change was so radical. I want to make a couple of observations from this text about uh, proclaiming Jesus. I guess you could say evangelism. But I want to say this first. Here's a disclaimer. None of us, none of us is the Apostle Paul. And, you know, in fact, we shouldn't even compare ourselves to Paul because we just get discouraged. Uh, He is the greatest Apostle. And, And we're in a, you know, a very different cultural context than he was. But nonetheless, there are some principles here, I think, that apply to proclaiming Jesus. And they're really quite simple. First is about content, and the second is about method. So first of all, content. I say stick to this. This is what Paul, Saul, started with. Very basic. And this is what we need to do. He said, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. Verse 22. Verse 27, do everything in the name of Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Talk about his divinity. Talk about what he came to do to save pe- sinners. And let your changed life do the rest of the speaking. Secondly, the method. Paul, Saul, rather, here, he did, he, he proclaimed Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to talk about that more later. Verse 22, he he. He was proving, so power of the Holy Spirit, but then he proved to others. This means that we need conviction and understanding from the word of God, and to share those convictions verbally with people. And however, this is not meant to be an excuse uh, for the need to speak to people, because we do need to open our mouths, but we must remind ourselves that, that the best proof of our faith is our changed life. Do people look at us like they did the apostles, and say, they've been with Jesus. And method, finally, Paul was bold and fearless. We see that here. Which leads to the fourth evidence of a changed life, which is an increase an increase in spiritual strength, or an increasing spiritual strength. Verse 22. But Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews. Another translation says Paul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews. And this wasn't book knowledge or head knowledge. This, like he had before, his great learning. This was a strength that came from the Holy Spirit. This was a spiritual power and knowledge and understanding that can only be learned and received from the Holy Spirit. I'm going to backtrack a little bit to verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house after God spoke to him and said, Go, go to Saul. And laying his hands on him, he, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled. With the Holy Spirit. A number of years ago, I was listening to uh, the director of Teen Challenge. I, I used to spend a lot of time in, in Teen Challenge in a previous church that I served at because their uh, their men's center was in that town. And the director from Teen Challenge in, in El Salvador came up to speak to the guys, and he was going on a tour of the Canadian uh, Teen Challenge uh, residences. His name was Ricardo Zalea. And I'll never forget it, he said to us at that time, and to the men there who were in recovery, he said, there are a lot of people who know a lot of theology, but little of the ways of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is key, is key to our strength, our ability, and our effectiveness in the kingdom of God, period. When the Spirit moves in, scales fall. That's the first thing that happened to to Saul. His eyes were open when the Holy Spirit took up residence in his life. We have a new perspective on things. We preach boldly. The Spirit is given to guide us and to teach us and to show us what to do. And and all of the key concepts in this passage, uh, strength, making Jesus known, knowledge, comfort, wisdom, peace, all demand the Holy Spirit in our lives. These are his roles, his work in us. Jesus talked a lot about the ministry of the Holy Spirit just before he um, ascended (laughs) to heaven. He said, Unless I go away, I'm not going to send the helper to you, the Spirit. And he said, "Uh, I didn't say these things to you from the beginning, John 16, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You see, we don't need to convict anybody. We just need to proclaim Jesus. The Holy Spirit will do that work. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit, friends, is critical. It's critical to our lives personally as Christians. It's critical to the church as we engage the mission that God has for us. Just wanna go to the Old Testament. The role of the Holy Spirit is a little different in the Old Testament, but nonetheless, these verses do uh, apply to us. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 6. Love this. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, we're different. We're changed. We're no longer that same person, you know? He who is in Christ is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone and the new is come. We're different. And then it says this. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do for God is with you. God is with you. That's his spirit, the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. He's with us all the time, guiding us and telling us what to do, where to go, what to say. You know, in in our text, if we go down a little bit further to verse 24, this is a pattern in the Apostle Paul's life. It says that, but their plot, you see people are trying to kill Paul because he's preaching the gospel. The Jews tried to, they were plotting to kill him. Verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul. Later on, Saul learned of their their plan. We see this over and over in Acts regarding this apostle. How? (laughs) The Holy Spirit revealed. Sometimes the Spirit spoke directly or gave an impression or a thought to the apostle and said, no, 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 don't go there. Other times it was through another person like Agabus who physically demonstrated what God was trying to say and he spoke, he prophesied by the Holy Spirit. We need to listen, friends. We need to listen to that. And even though people were plotting and seeking in Damascus and Jerusalem to destroy Saul, to kill him... It did not cause him to waver. And that's another thing that the Holy Spirit does to us. Gives us strength physically, emotionally, mentally, to carry on in the face of persecution and suffering. Paul's, Paul had told, or God had told Saul, just how much that he would have to suffer for his name. And he was right. The persecutor of the church became the persecuted. And Paul never wavered because the Holy Spirit was strengthening him. Nicky Gumble who wrote a a one year Bible devotional that I'm currently going through. He said this, to some like Samson, who we read about in today's Old Testament passage, this is from my devotions, um, the Holy Spirit gives extraordinary physical strength. To all of us, the Holy Spirit gives spiritual strength. The apostle Paul describes God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Ephesians 1. And it was the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 8. The Holy Spirit is his mighty strength. That same strength now lives in you and will give life to your mortal body through his spirit who lives in you. Nikki says, I love Eugene Peterson's translation of the Ephesians passage where he speaks of God giving endless energy and boundless strength. Listen, do you need today endless energy and boundless strength? Ask the Holy Spirit. Ask God to fill you with his spirit. Just because we were given the spirit at the moment of our conversion doesn't mean that we should never ask God to be filled fresh with an empowerment and anointing of his spirit. We need to do that daily. Do you know the greatest evidence of the spirit... The Spirit's work on our life, Paul wrote about later in Galatians. He said, look, when your life is characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, what he describes, the fruit, the evidences of his Spirit, then you know that God is with you, that he's in you. When I was uh, quite young, I was probably junior high, teenager. I grew up in a small town on the prairies, and uh, there was a guy in t- I mean, on the small towns, you just know everybody. There was a guy everybody called Big Stan. He was huge, like six foot eight kind of a guy, and just like big, solid, muscular man. And he was characterized and he was well known. He had a reputation of being mean, he was bad tempered, he was abusive, he was an alcoholic. And miraculously, God spoke to him, and he <laughs> went and visited the pastor at the church where I went. He gave his life to the Lord, and he was baptized. In fact, that was kind of one of the most amazing yet funny things I have almost ever witnessed in ministry. He, he almost drowned on the baptism tank because he took the pastor down with him. <laughs> he was so big. But they both came up. Everybody's cheering. And Stan was a completely different person afterwards. His life did not look the same. He went from being mean to displaying the fruit of God's spirit in his life. And you see, to live this way, to keep in step with the spirit, to spay the fruit of the spirit, it takes strength, again, that only the spirit can give us as he works in us and through us. John 6, 63, these are the words of Jesus. Before he talked extensively on the role of the spirit, he said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The final and fifth evidence of a changed life from this text is a deeper knowledge of the scriptures. In verse 22, it says, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. And then in verse 29, And he spoke and disputed, with against the Hellenists. He confounded people. He proved that Jesus was the Christ. He disputed some of some of the meanings of those words are debate to debate, argue, carry on a discussion, teach, reflect, meditate to to do this friends. We got to be willing to go deep. We have to be learners. And I want to say it again. We're not the great apostle, but at the very least, scripture says that we always need to be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that is in us. There's a book that the pastors here at uh, Central have been reading lately. It's called Leveling the Church, Multiplying Your Ministry by Giving It Away. And, and the author says this. Thomas Jefferson once wrote that a well-informed electorate is a prerequisite to democracy. And he said, if I could extend this quote a little bit, I would argue that a well-informed congregation is a prerequisite for a healthy, growing church. The sign of a changed life is a willingness to learn, to go deep, to be well informed. And the author of that book goes on to say, I pray that our churches, and Central, I pray that we will be like the Bereans in Acts 17, who double checked even the Apostle Paul's theology to see if what he was teaching was true and right. our text concludes this way. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Samaria and Galilee had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It multiplied. Why do churches grow? Is it because they have a strong social media presence and a good, you know, online video? (laughs) Is it because it has the right look or, the, or super good coffee on a Sunday morning. Listen, the church grows. It grows during times of persecution. We've seen that. But, and it also grows during times of peace. The church grows during persecution because it has no time to what I call navel gaze, to look down, to focus on myself, my problems, the church's problems, politics, There's a complete reliance on the Holy Spirit, but the the church also grows during times of peace. And during times of peace, like what happened after Saul gave his life to the Lord, the church needs to be much more intentional. It needs to be built up and strengthened. It needs to live in the fear of the Lord, not the fear of man. The question we have to ask ourselves is whose voice are we listening to these days? We can live in fear of man. But we need to fear the Lord. That's how the church grows. And it grows through the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And I think that these three things, the building up of the church, the fear of the Lord, and encouragement will be realized in our midst as we live out the changes that Christ has made in our lives when we meet him, when we have a healthy dependence on others, when we have an immediate and radical response or obedience to the word of the Lord, when we have an an excitement and an enthusiasm to always share Christ with those around us to proclaim Jesus, when we have a spiritual power and knowledge and understanding that can only be given by the Holy Spirit, and when we have a deeper knowledge of the scriptures. That's how the church grows, my friends. That's how the church grows. Is multiplied. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much today for your word. Thank you, God, that you took my life, that you interrupted my life on the path that I was going down and that you changed me. And God, I, I, I'm afraid that the changes in my life, they don't nearly look as radical as what happened to the to Saul, the Apostle Paul. Some of them are, Lord. And I praise you for the difference that you've made in your life, that you've made in my life. I I pray, God, for more of that. I ask for, again, a fresh anointing and filling of your spirit, not just for me, but everyone who attends Central and who's watching. Lord, believers in Jesus, they, they would be filled by the Holy Spirit. They would go deep with you. That they would be bold and fearless in proclaiming the gospel, the good news, that we would just have a radical obedience to you, that we would learn to not be independent, but rely on others. Lord, we need you for this. I pray you would bless us with these things and we'll give you all the praise and all the glory and we look forward, Lord, to your kingdom coming and your will being done as the church, the kingdom of God grows and grows and grows. That's what we long for, Lord. Multiplication of this ministry of the church, so that all people can be drawn to you and come into that relationship that they need, that Saul had, that I have. I ask for this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.